If you go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5, uh, we're going to continue in Matthew today. Um, but just a quick reflection, I don't know, uh, hopefully this catches you every once in a while, that uh, the, the singing's not just words on the screen or um, just something that we do uh, regularly every week when we gather, but um, just kind of a, every once in a while you just have that moment, you go, hey, you know, the reality is, is that uh, what we are doing as a church gathered together is exactly what uh, the church gathered before the presence of the Lord is doing all of the time, uh, and, and, and it's what we're made for. Um, so there's, there's really nowhere else that we can go or anywhere else that we could, like, this, this doesn't happen. Uh, it's not going to happen at, at halftime of the Super Bowl today, uh, where, where all of these people gathered together would be living out the purpose for which God has made them, which is the, the pouring out of his eternal praise, that he is eternally worthy of all of it. Uh, we, just, we just got to, to do that together, uh, and, and we get to do it every time we gather together. That's, uh, I mean, whether you like music or don't like music, the reality is, is that, that there, are, there are people gathered in front of the throne as we speak, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and, and we just got to do that. I hope it's not lost on you, as I just blubber. It's incredible. Uh, that this God who is holy and infinite in his character, perfect in every way, who is in every way set apart and different from us, invites us in. That's incredible. Um, it's what we're talking about. When we're talking about the kingdom of heaven in, in Matthew chapter 5, that's what we're talking about. This is the, this is the kingdom of heaven that Jesus talks about. Uh, this is what we're invited into, and this is what he's talking about as we go through the Beatitudes. When he says, blessed are the blank, right? He's saying, this is who gets to take part in my kingdom, uh, a kingdom that is so far and away different than any other kingdom. Uh, it is unlike any kingdom that we might find anywhere else. Uh, and when Jesus is laying it out for us, he's, he's already told his disciples uh, in his kingdom, blessed are those who are, are spiritually impoverished because when they see their need and they, and they respond to him in faith, they will inherit the kingdom of God. The, the kingdom of God belongs to those who recognize that they, in and of themselves, have no place in even thinking that they have a part in the kingdom. And for that very reason, he invites them in through faith. And then he goes on to say, blessed are those who mourn, for they should be comforted. For those who have a right response to the sin that separates them from a holy God and they respond in repentance and faith, they will be comforted in a way that is not just a temporary comfort. They'll be comforted with salvation. They'll be comforted in His presence for eternity. And this morning as we continue, we're, we're hitting the third beatitude in what's called Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's a time of, uh, where He is pulling his disciples aside, and he is instructing them, this is what my kingdom looks like. And, and, the, and the shotgun blast at the beginning that we're slowing down to just kind of yeah, try to take the fire hose a little bit more slowly, he's saying, this is what it takes to be a part of my kingdom. This is what life in my kingdom looks like. Um, and, and I hope you're catching, this is the third week, I hope you're catching by now that, that what life looks like, the life in Jesus' kingdom looks completely different than what our world values. It, it looks completely different than the things that we elevate and the things that we platform and the things that we would say this is important and this is necessary in an earthly kingdom. Jesus flips it on its head and says, in my kingdom, that's not the way it works. 
Uh, and so this morning, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5, again, we're slowing down, taking a, a verse at a time here for the next little bit. He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, if we just start with a, a general observation, uh, how many of you have used the word meek this last week in your daily vocabulary? In the last month? How many of you, like, when you're, when you're, if you're a text messenger, how, how many of you, like, if you're just going to go to auto, auto fill in a word and you put in me, it's going to be like, meek, because you use it all the time. Like, it's not a word that we use very often. Uh, and from, from a, a, a worldly perspective, when we hear it, I would venture to say that when we hear the word meek, we don't necessarily hear that as a positive thing. What we hear when we hear the word meek, and what the world would tell us, I think, by the word meek, is that meek is weakness. Meek is quiet. Maybe meek is shy. But meek is, is in, in other words, we would say meek almost looks cowardly. Meek looks like something you don't want to be. And then here comes Jesus saying, blessed are the meek. And I just got to be honest, maybe for, for, for men in the room, if you say, you just need to be more meek, you know, don't tell me that. I don't want to hear that. If you were to tell me to be any, any number of qualities, don't lead it off with meek. Right? There's a part of us that would kind of rail against that. And so from the biblical perspective, does, does, is meekness weakness? Is it, is it cowardice? Is it... Is it the opposite of strong? And I would suggest to you that biblically, just to give you kind of an idea of what does meek mean in the terms of, of Scripture, we're going to look at a, at a character who's described uh, as more meek than anyone else in just a moment. But in terms of the Scripture, meek could be equated with those who are humble, those who are submitted to the Lord. And another way of viewing it is it's strength under control as opposed to strength-seeking control. So strength under control, strength uh, power under control, under restraint by the person who wields it, rather than a, just an unleashing of strength that is grasping for something. So it's, it's, it's not just an absence of strength. It's not just complete weakness and, and meekness and mildness and, 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 and all of that. But it is, there's an element of it that it is, it is the capacity to do violence or to have strength and yet to restrain it and keep it under control. So what does this look like from a functional perspective within Scripture. I want to take us all the way back to the book of Numbers to start with. Numbers chapter 12. Numbers chapter, uh, really all of chapter 12. We're going to, I may not end up reading the whole thing, going to paint, paint some uh, perspective for you. But if you remember, uh, Genesis, well, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy really focus on, uh, especially Exodus through Deuteronomy, focus on the, the people of Israel being called out of Egypt and being formed into a people who were, who were, they were just a family going into Egypt at the end of Genesis, and they come out of Egypt in the book of Exodus as the people of Israel, led by a guy named Moses. 
And Moses is introduced to us early in the book of Exodus. He's a guy, uh, when Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, has made this command that every male son born in Israel, or of the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, is to be put to death. And Moses is introduced to us because his parents decide, we're not just going to let our son be put to death. They hide him in a homemade basket that's woven together, and, they, and they, they keep him hidden as long as they can until it's no longer feasible to keep him quiet. And then they place him in the river, in this basket, and kind of like nudge it into the right direction, and he is found by Pharaoh's daughter. So Moses, this Hebrew child, is raised in Pharaoh's household as a prince of Egypt. Uh, until he is 40 years old and he, and he sees an Egyptian slave master uh, abusing a Hebrew and he kills the Egyptian and hides his body. The next day or a couple days later, he sees a couple more Hebrews and now Hebrews fighting with each other. And he goes to intervene and they say, oh, you're going to kill us just like you killed the Egyptian? And he's like, oh, what I thought was secret was not secret. Right? Pharaoh finds out and Moses runs away from Egypt and into the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, and then in the wilderness, as Moses turns from a, a, a prince of Egypt to now a sheep herder on the backside of nowhere, God calls him and sends him back to Egypt. Despite Moses, and you remember, we're not going to rehash the whole thing, but Moses argues with the Lord in a sense of like, I'm not, I'm not the right person for this job. Uh, I don't have, I'm not great with words. I'm not great with people. Basically, I'm just like, I'm just really good with sheep. Let me stay here. And the Lord says, no, I want you to go to Egypt. And so Moses goes, along with the help of his brother Aaron. Aaron becomes his mouthpiece. So uh, Moses hears from the Lord, and then Moses relays it to Aaron. Aaron speaks to Pharaoh, this kind of thing, right? There's ten plagues that God lays out or, or wages on Egypt until finally Pharaoh lets the people of Israel go. But in every stop, even as they go out of Egypt into the wilderness, Moses is God's mouthpiece for his people, and he's also the one who is constantly interceding for God's people whenever they grumble, whenever they complain, and whenever they violate what God has told them to do, which is, remember going through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, it's all the stinking time. Moses is constantly on his face pleading for the people who God has told him to lead, right? And now in Numbers chapter 12, we're introduced to the situation where uh, Moses is with his sister Mir Miriam and his brother Aaron, and there's a dispute among the three of them. So in Numbers chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. But I want you to see verse 3, which is kind of an interesting thing. And keep in mind that Moses wrote Numbers. So this is, kind of, this is a really fun little verse here. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. I was like very, very like, hey, some, some versions might say he was more humble, more humble than anybody else on the face of the earth, recorded for us in scripture as a book of Moses. And that's just kind of a freebie, like kind of funny. But at the same time, it's an accurate description of who Moses is. And you go, well, so what does it mean was as if Moses was very meek, more than all the people on the face of the earth? And, and so what is this guy's, this meek guy's response to his brother and his sister bringing a complaint against him? Keeping in mind that at every stop, Moses has been a faithful servant of the Lord. Uh, and, and, and right here after verse 3, what we would kind of expect Moses to do is at least, there's like, I think, at least three categories that Moses could have appealed to. 
He could have appealed to his special call, like the burning bush where he said, like, yeah, the Lord has spoken to me. Jokers, he's called me specifically to be your leader. Why are you challenging me? Did he come and talk to you out of a burning bush? Did he, did he come and meet you face to face? Does he meet with you in the tent of meeting? Did you go up on the mountain and receive the Ten Commandments from him? Did you do any of this special stuff that I have done? Like, honest, how many of us would probably go that route? Now you challenge my leader, let me, let's just lay out the resume. We're a resume people, aren't we? Like, this is all of the reasons why I'm a special person. He could have appealed to his leadership capacity, his track record, and some of their deficits. Hey, Aaron, I don't remember that I ever sculpted a golden calf out of a fire and made the people worship it. Did you ever do that? Oh, you did? He didn't do that. Could have. That, how many of us would have gone to, 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 to go after the character of another person? Well, you think I'm bad, look at you, like, let's walk through your resume, right? He could have gone, this is my resume, let's go look at your resume, or he could have just very simply said, yeah, the Lord put me here. This is my position that he has put me in. What is fascinating is it says the Lord heard it, and then it's the Lord who responds, like Moses doesn't speak a word in this whole process, which is so contrary to what you and I would do probably in the situation, isn't it? So it says, and suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, Aaron and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. You come to the principal's office. Like, and then when the principal is the holy Lord of Israel, like that ought to be a little bit of a, oh no, maybe we spoke too soon moment. So, so the three of them came out, and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. He called all three of them to the tent, and then he said, Aaron and Miriam, why don't you step to the front of the class? Moses doesn't get called out yet. And he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? In other words, a little Pastor Zane summary moment. Some people I talk to in vague ways. I talk to Moses face to face, so what in the world were you thinking? You know how I talked to Moses, and yet you just challenged him? Like, and, 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 and it's the Lord who calls them to account, not Moses. Moses could have said the same thing. Is he talking to you face to face? I didn't think so. Moses doesn't say anything. It's the Lord who speaks. And then it says, in the anger of the Lord, this is maybe the terrifying part, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow, and Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. In other words, she just all of a sudden, out of nowhere, God just leprosy. And Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Aaron, when he says, Oh, my Lord, he's not referring to God, the God of Israel. He's saying, Oh, Moses, our leader. The, the one who has been put over us. Like, so catch this. Aaron just caught the message. We're in our place, right? He says, let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And I pause there. What do you think Moses' response is? He had a sibling spat. Your sibling just tried to like stab you in the back and steal your job. 
The Lord speaks on your behalf, at least, and, 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 and straightens things out. But then your brother, who just was in the act of, like, mutiny, says, hey, have mercy on us. And I'm just going to lay my cards out on the table. I have brothers. I would turn that knife a little bit. Like, are we, let's grovel just for a minute. Right? Let's enjoy this moment. What does Moses, the most meek man on the face of the earth, do? He cries to the Lord and says, oh God, please help her. Please heal her. That's crazy. Moses was in the position where he could have. He could have exercised his, his leadership in whatever way he sees fit. He has the strength. It's not that he's weak. Like we, up until this point in Numbers, if we were to go all the way back and rehash all the ways that we walked through Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers uh, a couple years ago, we would see that Moses is, is he's a man who has God's approval. He leads the people of Israel into battle. He intercedes for them. He's a person that, that I mean, God just said it. He speaks face to face with. Moses has all of God's resources at his disposal in a sense. He's the, he's the, the mouthpiece of the holy God of the universe. And yet, how does that, that gentleness play out? With a heart towards restoration for his siblings. But anyway, well, that's just a, a picture. So in the context where it says Moses is more meek than anybody else on the face of the earth, it, that, that phrase is given to us in the middle of a place where Moses could have taken things into his own hands. We know later that Moses doesn't always do the right thing. One time he fails to listen to the Lord and lets his anger burn, and it keeps him from going into the land of promise. But in this occasion, and in almost every other occasion, Moses is not for a lack of position, it's not for a lack of resources, it's not for a lack of ability or leadership, but he brings himself, constrains himself, restrains himself, and lets the Lord do what the Lord wants to do. Then Moses gets out of the way. Like, what does God want to do in this situation? Not what does Moses in his flesh want to do in this situation. In fact, so in James chapter 4, verse 6, just to take this just a, sm just a smidge further, Given us an idea of this, and, and we could say this across the whole Sermon on the Mount. In James chapter 4 and verse 6, James relays this to, to New Testament believers. He says, therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If there's one thing that, that we could say probably beatitude after beatitude, and we will say throughout the Sermon on the Mount, is that pride, human pride, is at odds with the kingdom of heaven. And that sounds obvious to us because we go, that's the holy thing to say, right? That's the right answer, that, that, that uh, humility is better than pride. Yet functionally, if we were to survey, like, uh, I'm, a, I'm a history nerd. Uh, if you just think of, of world history or you think of current events and, and recent history, if you think of individuals in history who have subdued nations, led armies, and changed the world, what type of people come to mind? You think of restrained individuals, calm individuals? Individuals who forego their own desires in order to seek the desires of somebody else? Or do we think of individuals who have the ability, the capacity, and the, like, just the power to accomplish the thing that they set their mind to? And, and those are the people in history that we celebrate. We celebrate a guy like Alexander the Great who conquered the entire world for himself. We celebrate like all of the Roman emperors who, who subdued 
previous barbarian regions. We celebrate the Vikings who, for their own strength and the, the strength of their own name, traveled across oceans and pillaged and established new places. Like, we don't celebrate people who say no to themselves. We don't celebrate people who have the strength and the ability but say, I'm not going to do that because it's the wrong thing to do. Right? We don't necessarily celebrate people of great integrity unless it benefits us. Otherwise, we look and go, wow, what a major gaffe. You have the ability to do that and you didn't do it? That was dumb. Right? Unless the integrity move benefits me, I go, well, you, you should have done something different. And yet, when we come to the kingdom of heaven, it's turned upside down. The first two Beatitudes, just again to recap. First of all, the, the spiritual inability. And then the right response to sin in, 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 in response to a holy God. is so the, the key to the kingdom of heaven, in a sense, if we want to make it real simple, is having an accurate view of God and having an accurate view of ourselves. Because an accurate view of God takes us to places like Acts chapter 17 and verse 25, where Paul, when he's in Athens, he, he tells the Athenian people there in Acts 17, 25, he's talking about the God in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord or the master of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. In other words, the God who, who Paul is preaching has created everything. He sustains everything, and he doesn't need anything from you and from me. Like, he is self-sufficient in who he is. And not in, a, and not in a smug, arrogant way. He just he is not lacking anything. This God is the one who gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And so a right view of God says that he's, he's the creator, He's a sustainer, he's holy, he's perfect, he's right, he's good. There's nothing that I could do for him, there's nothing he needs from me. How big does that make us feel if we were to really understand those realities about who God is? Have y'all ever, ever been somewhere that made you feel infinitesimally small? Like when you stand on, on, on the edge of an ocean and you just stare out at it and you can't comprehend what's beyond the horizon and you feel about this big? Or when you stare out at the night sky and you, and you see the wonders of what God has stretched out in the heavens and you go, that's big. I'm not so big. Yet that's contrary to who we are, in a sense. We look to, this is who I am. This is my resume. These are my strengths. This is, this is, right? We, how often do we lead off in a job interview with, let me tell you all the things I can't do. Let me tell you all the ways that I will fail you since you're a good employer and I'm like, this is all the ways that I'm not going to do a great job for you. How many of you do you start off that way? How many of you, if they said, what are your weaknesses? You're going to try to figure out how can I turn those into strengths so that you can see like, I'm really not a weak individual. In, in no human realm do we say this is how inadequate I am if you're trying out for a sports team and the coach said what can you do well, let me tell you what I can't do you can't make the throw from second to first I can't really make the throw from short to first well I can't hit so uh, I can carry water like nobody's going to do that to their coach they're going to say they're, they're going to 
play to their strengths and hide their weaknesses. Today's Super Bowl Sunday. How many of you think that they're going to go into the Super Bowl game going, let's, let's play to our weaknesses? Let's do all of the things today in the biggest game of the season that we know we can't do well. And the other team is going to say, let's let them do all of the things so great that they do so great. No, like the whole thing is exposing weakness, and, and, and the whole attempt is hide weakness and, and eliminate weakness so there, there's no chink in the armor, right? Like no, no knight ever went into battle and was like, I have a full plate of armor, but I'm going to leave off the chest plate today because I want them to aim there. Like nobody does that. We, have, we hide all the vital areas, right? Like I'll leave my arm exposed, but I'm going to cover the neck and the vital organs. Why? Because those are weak. We don't do that. Every instinct in us, in the flesh, is to maximize our strength. And yet, here comes Jesus and says, blessed are the meek. Those who don't seek their own strength. Those who find their place in the Lord. Those who look to Jesus as their strength rather than to those who look for themselves. And, and, and the only way, the only way that you and I would be possibly content with any ounce of weakness is if there's somebody stronger than us that's going to make up the deficit. Right? Like how many of you, again, sports nerd, how many of you would go on a team and if nobody on your soccer team could use a left foot, are you feeling really confident about the team going down that side of the field? And how many of you are going to feel really good about that? No. And the only way you would, but if nobody could use their left foot, the only way that I would give up my place on the team is if somebody could use their left foot in that way and it would help the team, right? Like if somebody can cover my weakness, it's like, okay, I, I realize my deficit, right? So if we have a right view of God, we recognize where we are weak and how he is strong in every way. It's the only way we would submit ourselves to him. And maybe you'd go, well, that's why I haven't submitted myself to him, because I, in, in reality, I have never said this, but in my heart, what I think is, I can do just as good of a job running my life as God can, because he's not that strong. So where we have gone wrong from the very beginning is, we have painted God in the wrong light. He's not the God of Scripture, he's the God of our imagination. If he's not strong enough to make up for my weaknesses, he's not God at all. And you're absolutely right. You should have no like you shouldn't follow him if he's not strong. If he's unable, you shouldn't follow him. But the reality is exactly the opposite. He is strong and perfect in every way. And you are not. And I'm not. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, Paul lays this out in light of the resurrection. He says, in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, in other words, if your life is hidden with Christ because of his death, burial, and resurrection, you've responded to him in faith, then seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And then there's uh, six verses right in the middle of, of Paul telling them all of the things that they ought to take off and put off and, and to stop entertaining in their life. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry. He says these things you used to walk in. He says you, you need to put away all anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. Don't lie to one another. All these things are, are being put off. And then in verse 12 he says, 
therefore then put on then instead, so you're taking things off that are in the flesh and you're putting on those things that God provides. He said, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. I, I, I typically try to stay away from all things politics, but if you were to imagine, uh, we're, we're getting close to the, the time where we'll have uh, presidential debates. Can you imagine if a candidate were in the, sake, in the, in the, in the place of a presidential debate to put on humility, kindness, gentleness, and meekness? And can you imagine what the response would be to that individual? We would, if Sunday school answer, we'd say we would applaud him. Reality. Just imagine how that headline will look. Candidate A made a horrible statement, opened themselves wide open. Candidate B showed humility, gentleness, and kindness, seeking to restore that person. What a loser! You're not going to get elected doing that. In our heart of hearts, if we're to be honest. If a candidate who was marked by kindness, humility, meekness, and patience was on the docket, would you support him? Or would you go, well, that's weakness. That's not going to win in this world. That doesn't fly in this office. Who does this person think they are? We need somebody who is strong, powerful, persuasive, right? Like, we don't want somebody going out in front of the world showing gentleness to the world. We're not a gentle people. Like, we can't have the world thinking we're gentle, hum humble people. We have to show the people that we are the baddest dude on the block. We need somebody that shows that. And you see, all of a sudden, really clearly, the kingdom of heaven is completely upside down. Because what the kingdom of heaven values is completely different than what you and I would value in the flesh. So one of the questions is, well, then if Paul says put on these things, well, how are we to put them on? In verse 14 of Colossians chapter 3 says, uh, above all, you're to put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The, the love of God is one that is self-sacrificing rather than self-seeking. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. There's only one way to have peace with God, and that is through the work that Jesus has done in dying on our behalf and, and making peace for us. And then in verse 16, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. How do we, how do we put these on? We, 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 we focus on, our eyes go to where Christ is seated. Why? The only way the kingdom of heaven works is if our eyes are on Jesus, the one who has initiated the kingdom. He's the head of the kingdom. And, and maybe that's where the rub is for you and I this morning is, wait, you mean I'm not the head? I don't, I don't get to be the leader? I don't get to be in charge? I have to be in submission to somebody else? The last place I want to take is just to, to see this, and, and, and again, this upside-down view. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 
might be a familiar passage to you. Maybe you've never seen it before. At the end of 2 Corinthians, Paul is, uh, is writing to a church that he has had a, a lot of experience with. And, and 1 Corinthians is a letter of correction. And, and in a lot of ways, it's a difficult letter because he's trying to clear up a lot of, of junk in the church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians, he's following up on that. And there's people that are demeaning uh, Paul and his character and who he is. Um, and, and he takes on this realm of, in, in chapter 11, he's, he's boasting, but he's boasting about all the ways that he has suffered. Um, and it's a really glamorous view of, of Paul's life in obedience to the Lord. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, then he goes from just those external things that have, have been a challenge to him and have caused him suffering in his pursuit of Jesus. And in 2 Corinthians 12, he begins to talk about an internal uh, thing of suffering or something that is not outside of him. Uh, he says, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Uh, so he's talking about his, uh, he, he, he's, he is a, the one who has been caught up and has been allowed to see a vision of heaven. I know a man in Christ, this is his humble way of saying, it's me who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know quick pause. Third heaven is just, uh, first heaven is sky, second heaven, uh, stars, third heaven, where God lives. So in the realm of making that make sense, rather than three different heavens. Uh, and he says, and I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. Uh, and he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. And you know, that's not, again, that sounds weird. Who, who likes to talk about how they're weak? It says, though, if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it. And in other words, I have lots of things I could talk about, uh, but I'm going to refrain strength under control so that no one may think of me more than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. Paul never tells us what this thorn is other than it's something that, that is a constant companion to him in suffering. And it's, he, he identifies and says, it's, it's for my good. Three times, though, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he, the Lord, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Think about it. If we're, we're a resume people, would we be content with weakness, insult, hardship, persecution, calamity? Or are those the things that we would desperately seek to avoid? And the question for Paul and the question for you and for me is why in the world would I or anybody else glory in my weakness or your weakness? Why in the world would you be content with your weakness? Why in the world would you be content with all of your failings? Not in the sense of those that push us to a faith response, but just in, in who we are. 
in our inabilities, our incapabilities. And I think Paul hits it. He says, verse 10, for the sake of Christ, the only way you and I would be content in weakness is only if Jesus is the strong one. Only if he is the one that has the strength. Only if he's the one who already has the victory. For the sake of Christ, what what am I willing to be content with? And the picture here is then not laying hold of our own strengths, but clinging to Jesus. It's not a denying of the strengths that we have, but it is recognizing that even in our strengths, they are best used in submission to Jesus. And the weaknesses that we have, even in our weaknesses that we would hide from everyone else, Jesus can work through those and do through those more than we could possibly think or imagine. And so one of the difficult questions that I would leave you with to think about this week in terms of the kingdom and and weakness and strength and, and, and choosing to deny the use of my strength for the good of another or choosing for him to be revealed in me is this burning question that I think you and I have to answer if we're going to be honest with ourselves. And that is, who is deserving of the praise and glory of my life? And phrased another way, for whose glory am I working at? My day in, day out activities and and thoughts and motives and everything else, whose kingdom am I trying to build? Whose kingdom am I trying to assert in this world? Am I laboring for a kingdom that I can make with my own hands based off of the use of my strengths and the denying of my weaknesses? Or am I a part of the kingdom of God where Jesus' strength is expressed perfectly and I am faithfully responding to him however he wants to use me? The reality is God knows your weaknesses even if you try to hide them. Other people might be blind to them. God sees them. I'll leave you with the beatitude as we close. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth.